CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, January 20th. That's going to be a long day today. All right. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, January 20th. It's just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, sponsor this program, as well as our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Ben Jarofsky, hit us with that song of the day. Love is in the air. Yeah, baby, love is in the air. I'm feeling it, all right? He's feeling it, guys. <laughs> the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. Tuesday, January 21st, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Duke-Masova, will join us, and it's the long-awaited return of President of the Chicago Principals Association, our good friend Troy LaRavier. And now your host, the long-awaited return, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Hand Holding Tuesday. That's what we're calling it. And here's why. Great week. You have a good weekend, D? Yes, th- three days ago. It was <laughs> I had a great weekend, man. I saw Marriage Story. Got one word about Marriage Story. Right, Got to prepare. What is it called? Uh, marriage story. Oh, marriage story. Yeah, what did you think I said? Mayor story? I don't no, know what you said. marriage story. Now, we're having a, a show on January 20, uh, what day was it? 29th. We're bringing all the, the smartest brains in the world about movies into the studio to talk about the great so movies So I won't be talking. <laughs> you'll be, but you'll be here. Uh, Dennis, you've seen two of the big movies. No, one. You've seen Joker, That right? Yeah, and Jojo Rabbit. Oh, Jojo Rabbit, yeah. Jojo was a man. Yeah, I like Jojo Rabbit a lot. Anyway, uh, so to prepare for that, I'm still watching movies. To prepare for that discussion, had to watch Marriage Story. Got one word about Marriage Story. Overrated. Uh-huh. All right, and then I watched Judy, which is a story, a movie about Judy Garland. And I watched that because Renee Zellweger uh, is up for Best uh, Actress. And I got to tell you, folks, I hate to admit this, I was crying like a baby uh-huh. at that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Man. Yeah, no, man. Judy Garland, I love Judy. I'm going to just say it. I'm going to put it out there. I love Judy Garland. Maya Dumasova in the studio. She loves Judy Garland, too. Uh, she's nodding her head. She, I'm not sure if Maya's ever seen a Judy Garland movie. Anyway, uh, so then I woke up, and she's like, I have seen one. Uh, I woke up and discovered it was Martin Luther King Day, uh, which is the one day of the year where people in the city of Chicago hold hands. And uh, say nice things about each other before they go back to fighting each other, gouging each other's eyes out, which is what they... And that's not even a full day that they do it, D. I think it's like for an hour at a breakfast that uh, where all the movers and shakers of Chicago are invited. Were you invited to that breakfast, D? No. I don't think so. Uh, were you? you? 
Uh, no, I've never been invited to the Martin Luther King Day. Never, ever. Okay, you know, I go if invited, but uh, actually, it's really early in the morning. I thought issues getting up uh but um so you know they always forget of course that when martin luther king was alive and uh in full uh in power and glory he came to chicago to bring his movement uh for open housing and a more equitable distribution of money and end slums and spend money wisely investing in people and neighborhoods that need it the most as opposed to throwing it down the military industrial complex when he was alive and strong and speaking for himself Chicagoans showed how much love they have for Martin Luther King by hitting him in the head with a rock. All right? Isn't that funny? Uh, they love him now that he's not around, uh, but they didn't like him very much when he was around and uh, speaking from his heart. Uh, anyway, so uh, there was great examples in the newspaper today of people feeling uh, that one hour of love that they feel one day a week, one hour of love, one, excuse me, one hour of love, one day a year. Uh, there was a picture of Jesse Jackson and Richard Durbin, Senator Durbin, at the uh, Martin Luther King breakfast that you were not invited to, D. Um, nor are you. <laughs> no, was, nor was I. Uh, there's also a story, interesting story, a pro-gun rally of thousands in Virginia. And these are people that you would not nor, nor, normally associate with uh, loving Martin Luther King. But I guess they were feeling the love. It's usually a bunch of white guys uh, with guns uh, saying how we need less laws restricting gun use because, uh, why? Because guns, it's hard to get a gun. And I really don't understand the argument that they make. Uh, it seems pretty easy to get a gun. There sure certainly are a lot of guns in our society. Anyway, uh, to show that they're not just all White guys, there was one black man at the, at least one black man at the rally, and um, this is what he had to say. I'm getting this from the Sun-Times. I love this. This is like the Super Bowl for the Second Amendment right here, uh, said P.J. Hudson, a truck driver from Richmond who carried an AR-15 rifle just outside of Capitol Square. He was one of the few African-American rally goers in a crowd that was overwhelmingly white and male and was frequently stopped and asked to pose for pictures wearing his, quote, Black Guns Matter sweatshirt. So black guns matter, but black lives don't matter. I wonder if there was anybody at the uh, pro-gun rally wearing a shirt that said uh, black lives matter. But, uh, you know, it was Martin Luther King Day, so even at the pro-gun rally, uh, they were holding hands. And finally, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, marched together uh, arm in arm at the Martin Luther King March in South Carolina. And there's a photo in the paper of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren shaking hands so now she's taking his hand all right last week we talked a lot about how she didn't want bernie put that big bernie paw out there to shake hands with elizabeth warren after the debate and elizabeth warren said no you lied about me and then bernie said oh you lied about me that's my bernie it's story. getting better you <laughs> lied about me we had lc in the studio last week well, sounds a little like scooby-doo <laughs> but we're getting there larry cohen who's in the studio was the guy loves bernie more than anybody i've ever met he sounds like bernie oh yeah i'm larry cohen uh and i approve of this ad anyway uh so bernie and they're shaking hands now now i'm gonna say something right here I'm going to get all my Bernie bros mad at me. I'm, I, You know, I've been warned by people, don't do it, Ben. You're going to get the Bernie bros mad at you. But you know what? I don't hate on Elizabeth Warren like Bernie bros do. Okay, D, I'm just putting that out there. I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> Bernie bros, oh, God damn, I've had enough of this guy. Listen, man, I'm going to throw this out to our mystery guest. We have a mystery guest in the studio. That's probably the person, if you're watching the live stream, wondering, who's the mystery guest? We're gonna, she's going to get this question. Here's the deal. 
my Bernie bro uh, listeners are always telling me the reason they love Bernie so much is that Bernie has been saying the same thing for, what is it, 50 years. He hasn't deviated. Uh, he has a sense of what America, the direction America should go in, the laws he would pass and support uh, if he were president, the kind of movement he would lead. It, he hasn't changed his tune. Uh, he doesn't bend with the breeze. Uh, he's fixed. And I, he has fixed principles that have governed him his entire political career, and I can appreciate that. And that's why Bernie's currently number one on my list of five, okay? That, you know, I got my top five. And uh, in the Democratic nomination, uh, the primary for the nomination. Anyway, uh, on, on the other hand, they say, well, Elizabeth Warren, as of 1996, was a Republican. People, you know, I don't know if you know that, D. Elizabeth Warren was a Republican, mm-hmm. and she did not officially become a Democrat until 1996. Now, I could quickly point out that Bernie Sanders is not even officially a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist. Okay, just throwing that out there, Bernie bros, uh, to make you feel a little happier. But I'm just throwing that out there, giving uh, Elizabeth Warren a hard time because she didn't officially become a Democrat until 1996. So I look at it this way. Yes, it's true that Elizabeth Warren did not emerge into adulthood uh, articulating the same views she's articulating now. But I can make an argument or case for evolving toward a position, like looking at the world and seeing everything that exists and realizing that maybe the worldview you had uh, as a child and as a teenager and as a, uh, a young mother and a law school professor was wrong and that uh, the world's different than you. you saw. And you have the, what, the flexibility, the nimbleness, uh, the open-mindedness to change your position. And that's... Uh, you know, and adopt a position that's more in line with what I believe in progressive politics. So I'm going to make the argument that maybe it's more, it's just as heartfelt in Elizabeth Warren as it is for Bernie, because this is the, this is the worldview that she developed as she went through life. So I'm going to give her that shout out. I'm not a uh, Elizabeth Warren hater, like uh, many of my friends of the Bernie Bro persuasion. And uh, I think she would be a great candidate for the Democrats. That said, that's one of the dumbest political moves of all time, not to shake Bernie's hand and to listen to whoever it was in the back rooms of your campaign telling you it was a good idea to try to get women to vote for you by playing that old tune about Bernie. By the way, you know someone else was not feeling the love yesterday? I should say it was uh, Martin Luther King Day and everybody was feeling love for everybody else. Hillary Clinton still has not made <laughs> her amends with Bernie Sanders. She's still hating on Bernie. I don't know if you saw that interview. Anyway, she was ripping on Bernie pretty bad. Uh, so anyway, that's my thought. Elizabeth Warren, I'm feeling a little bit uh, sympathetic for Elizabeth Warren these days. She t- it was a rough week for her last week. She made a mistake. She listened to some of the people in the back room who think they know everything and don't really know a whole lot, uh, and she paid for it. But they'll throw her under the bus. Bernie bros, all right? Show a little compassion for Elizabeth Warren. We got a great show today, everyone. Maya's here already. She's all fired up. I'm sure she's going to be uh, giving me a piece of... We're going to be talking about the first congressional district. I may throw a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren question to Maya, too. She's ready for that. Troy, Troy, she nods her head. Yeah, she's ready to rock and roll. Troy LaRavier will be in here, uh, the head of the Chicago Principals Association. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, delegate in 2016, and get his thoughts on all the political views of the day. And we have... A mystery guest, D. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. In this studio, we have a mystery guest uh, in this studio. Should I introduce our mystery guest? A mystery for... guest, you say? Yes. Thank you for playing that music. Should I introduce our mystery guest right now, or do we want to go to the news? Well, as we spoke of before the show, <laughs> pre-show prep, I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> you do it now. All right. So, mystery guest, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Rachel Ventura, and I'm running for Congress in the Congressional District of 11 of Illinois. And I want to mention something you said about MLK Day. So, uh, you talked about Bernie having 50 years. You know, he's continuing the movement that we saw that MLK did when he was not in you know, um, well-liked when he was alive, and that is the Poor People's Campaign. You know, it is the democratic socialist that Bernie stands on today that came out of the movement of MLK, and he talked about the wealth inequalities and the right to have health care and how it wasn't just a racial issue. So tying all that together, um, wow, you really kicked at the Bernie bros on that one. <laughs> And what this is what I have to say. I, I see where you're coming from. And for people to consider where Warren came from, think of all of the people in her life, the, her, the friends, the family members who were Republicans who probably gave her a lot of heartache and how she had to be not just a strong voice for the Democratic Party, but as a woman, you know, it's hard to speak out sometimes in society. And that's one of the things that she's showing other women that they get excited about. So you want to say playing the gender card well that that's where it is where women feel that they want to have a voice too and they want people who are going to be brave enough to speak up for them and so what i see happening with the handshake and stuff is that as progressives what we need to do is we need to come together and not let the biden and buddha judge wing of the party destroy us over the things that are not important the things that are important are passing the green new deal are getting medicare for all and this is where both bernie and elizabeth do stand and they stand united so it's nice to see them shaking hands it's nice to see them walking together uh for a movement that's so important in this country that we need to continue to see that so yeah i mean when it comes down to that convention we need all of our delegates whether they're bernie or elizabeth fighting for the progressive platform yeah, yeah and and not have a situation like we had where hillary clinton four years later is still fighting the fight from 2016 and uh I understand why a lot of Hillary supporters uh, are irritated at Bernie bros because they said a lot of nasty things about Hillary during the campaign. But Bernie himself campaigned that last month definitely hard for Hillary Clinton and not to show any love or appreciation for Bernie for what he did, uh, I think is misguided on the part of Hillary Clinton. Well, and the other thing that the DSA also stands for, which I really uh, appreciate, is that they're all about inclusion, not exclusion. They want to have everybody at the table. So if we don't allow for people to adapt and come on board with the ideas, then we are turning that chair away from them saying, no, you can't have a seat at our table because you're not a purist. Yeah. We don't want that, right? We want everyone to come and see like you said, why do you believe in this movement? Well, I believe because it invests in people, right? It closes that wealth gap. It provides policies that are fair for everyone, not just the millionaires or those who have bought you know, access to lawmakers, but everybody in this country, a government that works for everyone. We want people to see that. We don't want them to get distracted on handshakes. We don't want them to be distracted on the he said, she said. We want them looking at the policies and say, you know what, that's a policy that will help my family. That's a policy that's going to lower my bills or increase my pay, and that's something that's going to help the quality of life I have. All right, but the reality reality is, as you know, uh, Rachel, uh, is that uh, political campaigns are won on all kinds of uh, trivialities. And there is no doubt in my mind 
that it, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's campaigns made huge mistakes in the last two weeks. One, Bernie with that elite thing where they were having their little robots reading, oh, you know, she's an elitist, blah, 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 which I thought was misguided. And that really irritated Elizabeth Warren. And then they came out with the cockamamie. He said a woman can't win. And so now they're like just pecking at each other. And it's be- I swear, I have no proof of this. I got to say this. Uh, I have no proof, Rachel, that this is the case because I'm not in the back rooms, but it just sure smelled like a tactic that some little smarty pants who like, this is how we're going to win, Elizabeth Warren. We could just poke a little at the scabs and the wounds here and get some women to flip flop from Bernie. to, And it's like. What are you well, thinking? and I think that's the thing that we should be discussing, the scabs and the wounds of the f- female audience out there. You know, we do have, I mean, I have a male campaign manager, and we go back and forth on, on what the gender reality is. And I understand the fear that men have, too, right? They don't want to be accused of something they haven't done. They don't want to stack the cards against them. I don't want that to happen either. But women also want to be heard and said, well, these are some things, some slights that we deal with on a daily basis, and here are some abuses we deal with, too. And so the conversation we should be having is not, oh, how can we exploit this in a campaign and, and poke at each other? But what is it that female, you know, that the individuals need to be heard, whether it's the males who are, are fearful of the swing of power? And there's some legitimacy there, too. I'm not trying to say that it's all made up or it's all concocted. But also, why is it that women feel that they haven't had accurate voice? Um, and we don't get accurate time sometimes on the campaign. I've seen that. You know, the incumbents that I'm running against is a male. And so 23 percent of Congress are females. That means if you favor the incumbent, you've already favored the male side of the audience. So one of that, that is an uphill battle for women to fight. And so there are times that our voice is, we have to be louder, we have to be stronger, and then we have to make sure we're not judged by that because you get the electability part that comes up. But at the end of the day, we need our politics to be about policies and not about entertainment. All right, and let's just uh, take a moment to talk about your campaign. We, I forced you into talking about these national political issues. Uh, uh, Rachel was on our show, was it about a month ago? Yeah. Uh, I think it was right in the middle of the holidays. I sort of, uh, I think it was about a month ago. And I, uh, with my mind association, I keep calling her Robin Ventura and Ace Ventura and all this stuff. But Rachel Ventura, Jesse Ventura, you're running the 11th Congressional. You're, uh, it's a primary, so you're running against a Democratic incumbent, Bill Foster. And the reason you happen to be at the Sun-Times today, and I said, come on into the studio, uh, is because you met before the editorial board, uh, you and uh, Congressman Foster. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so right off the bat, you know, they talked about our top issues, and I was disappointed that Foster talked about AI, artificial intelligence, as the number one issue. And, you know, rightfully so, I said to him, as a scientist, you should be embarrassed that climate crisis was not your answer, because that is the issue. And then that that trickles down into the wealth inequality we have and how it's going to hit people hardest who are poor, people of color, people who live on the coastal lines, people's jobs who are in the fossil fuel industry right now, refineries, and the Green New Deal would help alleviate that for those who are going to be hit hardest. And the fact that he didn't even he didn't even talk about climate at all in the top three issues. He talked about opioids, he talked about artificial intelligence and infrastructure. And at the end of the day, he's out of touch. He's the 34th richest person in Congress. He's a multimillionaire. He doesn't understand what the struggles of most people in his district. I'm a single mom, I work two jobs, I know what it's like to balance, do I pay for healthcare or do I pay my electric bill? And uh, so is your sense when you go out and you uh, meet uh, editorial boards like the Chicago Sun-Times, which is a little different audience than 
talking to me. Uh, <laughs> let's let's be bit. honest. A little <laughs> bit. Uh, when you deal, when you move to the center, and you leave uh, the shelter of the left, like this little shelter we have here, this little room. Um, do you sense that there's hostility? Do you sense there's what uh, people want to marginalize you? Uh, they roll their eyes at you. What's you know? There's the criticism that you know. Can we do this? And that's such a frustrating. And we talked about this last time I was on the show that you know they always ask, how do you pay for that? Well, how did we pay for the 22 billion dollar increase in the national defense budget that we that they just passed? You know, the endless wars, the fact that Trump is trying to get us in a war with Iran. I mean, how do we pay for that? So it's very frustrating when you hear that. But the reality is there are savings. So, you know, Medicare for all came up and the sometimes, you know, question me, oh, we've heard the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie side of it, but we also heard the other side of it. And is this practical? And are we just being impatient? Is my generation just being impatient on these bills? That was a question that was brought up. And the thing I have to say about that, especially when it comes to climate, is we're out of time. By the time I get elected to Congress, we will have 10 years to make real change before we see some casualties, like some very significant casualties. So we don't have the luxury of sitting around for the next 70 years debating this. And the reality is the fossil fuel industry has spent the last 30 years trying to hide the fact that they knew their product was endangering everyone's lives. And so when it comes to Medicare for all, yeah, health. We Every year when insurance denies the claims of people, 40,000 people die every single year. The, that's unfathomable. You know, for, we're supposed to have you know, the best health care in the world, but then why do we have such high casualties? Why does our life expectancy continue to decrease as our profits or as our uh, pay to health care increases? Mm-hmm. We're, the tw- we're twice as expensive as any other country out there with health care, and yet we don't have the same coverage for most Americans. It's unfathomable. Yeah. So the time thing, it's important. Lives are on the line. So yeah, we're out of time. And my generation sees that. Millennials and the next generation after me see that. And they, they know, again, the, the struggle is that the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. And as long as we allow that to happen, people will suffer. Yeah, no, I uh, I hear you. It's so funny. Uh, you're impatient. I mean, I'm an old geezer. I've been waiting for uh, Medicare for all for the 50s. Well, I was just a little kid. Even I was just a little kid in the 50s. But... I mean, so I, yeah, I don't buy into the impatience uh, at all. I mean, why, uh, why aren't the, uh, like the rich guys who are, when they want tax breaks, why aren't they impatient about their tax breaks? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing about this too is, you know, I think we talked a little bit before about old power versus new power and new power is the ability to get resources yourself, whether it's education, money, uh, in the past, old power, they would they would reserve that. They would gatekeep that, right? You had to go to a priest to have someone read the Bible to you. You had to go to the rich or, you know, highly educated to get your answers. Uh, and only certain people could go down that path. Well, with modern technology, we all have the ability to check out WebMD and then be an advocate for ourselves when we go see our doctor. You know, we can look up information. We can you know learn to read very easily now in, in public schools. And so this allows people to take control of their lives. And And so when I hear that argument about, oh, people are just impatient, no, I think they're more informed. (laughs) I think that they see what's happening and they're tired of having the wool pulled over our eyes. And we say, no, stop putting our taxpayer dollars in the fossil fuel industry, into big pharma, into the military industrial complex, and start putting it back in people. It's our taxpayer dollars. They should be coming back to our communities, back to projects that that help us. Uh, Okay, Rachel Ventura, she's running for Congress in the 11th Congressional District. We're gonna, uh, Dennis has got a bunch of news he wants to read. Rachel, stick around. Maybe she has a few thoughts on the news of the day. Rachel, where can people find more info about you electventura.com 
Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome. <laughs> by, by the way, Rachel, can we just take a pause? Look how look I at know. that young man I with know. that tie, huh? They'd be a fool not to hire you. That website one more time. Electventura.com. All right. They would be a fool not to hire this young man. But he would still be on the Ben Jarofsky show, right, D? Yeah. All right. He had best of both worlds. All right, young man. Speaking of which, he's the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Rachel Ventura can tell you, back in Alton, they call him Dr. Doobie. What's the news, young man? Nobody calls me that. All right, everyone. Let's unpack the news that's happened in Chicago and or Illinois this week thus far. And it's this week's hottest dance craze in Illinois. All together, everyone, let's all do the Illinois Senate Shuffle. Slide to the left. Slide to the left again. Uh, Guys, it's a real easy dance. They're all Democrats. Just slide to the left over and over again. Well, they move back to the center a little bit with that one. But anyway, go ahead. All right, enough dancing. We got to get down to business. Illinois Senator and Illinois Senate President John Cullerton has officially resigned after Sunday's vote we now have a new Illinois Senate president it's Don Harmon more on that in moments but first Ben Jarofsky you know how fast the news cycle goes these days unless we find out he did something very corrupt which in Illinois isn't impossible but John Cullerton will soon be yesterday's news any final political words that you'd like to say well, about the now resigned Senate president Cullerton Johnny Cullerton uh, north side of Chicago Democrat uh, sort of the you know he's a he's a centrist and that's the role he played in uh, the in, in springfield and uh, more often than not as i've said before uh, he was the uh, leader who was called on by uh, mayor Rahm Emanuel uh, to torpedo uh, progressive legislation like that people in the city of chicago want we're gonna have troy laravier in the studio a little while ago uh elected school board was something that troy was advocating uh, many years ago and uh, it would die in the senate where john cullerton reigned so some of the issues that uh, robin was talking about on a national level the struggle between moderate democrats uh and uh progressive democrats are embodied by the role that um John Cullerton played. Rachel, get your thoughts on this. I'll throw you into the hot seat here. Uh, you know, we're, we're, a Democrat has power, but instead of using that power to really push for progressive uh, programs or proposals, what they do is they use that power to bottle them up and then tell the progressives, you're impatient, uh, you're just pushing too far to the left, we have to worry about the middle. Uh, and this is a role that I've seen Democrats do for years and years and years to you instead of using the power that they have to push hard and force the conversation uh, to the left, they kind of use the power they have to undercut uh, the left and uh, keep things in the middle or move it to the right. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the biggest issue that our state needs to be dealing with right now is the education and property taxes. And so instead of moving our education funding towards coming out of our income taxes, we rely heavily on our property taxes. So something like 14% of our schools, it's funded 14% out of our income tax. The rest is our property taxes. Other states have, as well, Hawaii has 100% out of their income tax. I think California is, is creeping up to 70%. But most countries, or most most states, are well over fourteen percent. So the problem is, then we create a divide amongst what type of education you get, and then it forces federal dollars to 
invest in these Title I schools that just can't afford. Joliet has many Title I schools. And so you got Naperville has got a sur surplus of property tax dollars for their schools. They're literally cutting checks back to people who live in those industry uh, in the cities. But then you have places like Joliet that need extra funding. Whereas if we had even just 70% of our schools were funded through our income tax, then it would really close that divide. Uh, and then the 30% extra from your property taxes, first of all, it would, it would create a very low property tax bill since the number one uh, thing that creeps up our taxi bill is our education costs. Uh, but then you would still have, you know, maybe a little bit better in areas that are more fluent and uh, versus the ones that are not, but it wouldn't cripple or handicap those schools. Yeah. And so that's really where, you know, that shouldn't be a progressive issue, right? Every Democrat, every Republican should be pushing for good education in the, in the it state. It should only be a progressive issue. But yeah, <laughs> not just uh, everybody. And by the way, uh, Michael Madigan on this particular issue wasn't great for years. He stifled uh, attempts to have a fair tax because he thought it would uh, it, uh, work against some of his uh, legislators. So it wasn't just Cullerton in all fairness on this particular right. issue. Maya, you got any thoughts about Cullerton before I go back to Dennis for more news updates? Uh, I am very curious what will happen to uh, the rent control um push now in Springfield because Cullerton was the number one stumbling block for both the um, repeal of the Rent Control Preemption Act and also the um, uh, considering the proposed um, like actually establishing rent control statewide. So um, Cullerton was like the huge impediment to, um, to, to, to movement on those bills and any meaningful discussion on them. So yeah, I'm curious to see I mean, what what's going to happen now? But from what I understand, who is the person that's that's replacing Don Harmon uh, from Oak Park? We're going to get in. I'm sh Dennis is a little more on this. But, I don't know uh, how connected he is to the real estate industry, but maybe he won't be that different. <laughs> uh, By ahead. Friday, we were down to two choices for Illinois Senate President Senators Don Harmon and Kimberly. No, not Lightfoot. Light Ford. Kimberly Light Ford. A secret ballot went down on Sunday. Which Democrats were involved in the vote? Shh. It's a secret. <laughs> but apparently there were 39 of them. The mysterious votes were tallied, and it was Lightford 17, Don Harmon 22. After the results were in, both Harmon and Lightford went behind closed doors to cut a deal. You gotta love Illinois politics. Secret ballots and backroom deals right in your face in the news. Lightford's team offered up their terms. Harmon said, yeah, okay, sure. They moved the vote to the full Senate, and the deal was done. Harmon won the seat. Since the vote, news broke that Senator Kimberly Lightford accused fellow Senator Emil Jones and his father, a former Senate president himself, of conspiring against her efforts to secure the Senate president gig. She felt betrayed, she told the Chicago Sun-Times. Lightford said Jones' father, Emil Jones Jr., had an issue with women. Lightford still saw the Joneses as friends and felt deceived when her fellow senator stood behind Harmon. All right, now to the other Cullerton gig. Don Harmon is Senate president. We got that. Now, who's going to replace Cullerton's actual gig as state senator? Tonight, Illinois State Rep Sarah Feigenholtz is expected to be named to fill John Cullerton's state Senate seat. Democratic members are scheduled to meet at Sheffield's Beer Garden for the vote, as long as it's not that place where they have those big drinks that Eddie Johnson went to, all right? So no big drinks. Series? Yeah. As long I think as they should there. have it at series. Might yeah. make for some interesting discussion. As long as it's not there. Feigenholtz has already gained the endorsement of key members on the committee, and she has served for damn near 25 years in the House. Ben, what do we know about Feigenholtz, and will she make a good senator? 
I don't know about the latter, but uh, Sarah Feigenholz is your traditional lakefront liberal. She's been a state rep from, uh, I forget what the what district it is. I know it's around uh, Belmont. I used to see her uh, at Ann Sather's, uh, your oh. favorite restaurant. Oh, on, Tom uh, Tunney's, Tommy uh, Tunney's <laughs> fiefdom. In fact, the last time I saw Sarah Feigenholz, by chance, uh, I had been hanging out with Maya. We had gone to the um, inauguration where Lori Lightfoot gave that speech, mm-hmm. uh, blasting the the, the alderman. <laughs> and then I uh, uh, went home and I said, you know what, I need a sweet roll. So I went in a cinnamon roll and I went to uh, uh, Ann Sather's and there was young Tom Tunney uh, at the same table as Sarah Feigenholz. She was his guest, if you recall, when, remember all, each alderman got to bring a guest up. Uh, so mm-hmm. anyway, so What was Tom Tunney eating? I, you know, I did not say. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that was good. She's good. That's correct. Uh, Maya, we're playing at Zanies. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but here's the question: Then who's going to take her state house seat? Oh, well, that's uh, they're going to cut a deal, and I think um, I'm just blanked on his name. Uh, Posner is his name, and I think they already cut that deal pretty much. You know, it's like there's no real lefties. There's no, oh, she's going to get mad at me for saying this. There's no real Rachel Venturas <laughs> running. In, you know what I'm saying? It's all centrists. and I uh, ran against the will of my party, so. <laughs> you ran against the what of your party? The will of the Democratic oh. Party when I ran for Will County. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't want, they didn't want a leftist running, but the people did. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm really curious, like, how would the, that area, would they go for a really, like a, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I'm going to throw Elizabeth some love there, all right? I feel there's a lot of been a bashing of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, a leftist on social issues in that area? I don't know how, it, you know, um, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking of the aldermen in that area. I'm thinking of the state reps in that area. Kelly Cassidy is a little to the north. Uh, and so, she, you know, she always says uh, her district's the most left in the, in the whole state. But really are no uh, Bernie-style Democrats from that area. So... I don't know if it's because uh, the Democratic Party has lost its convictions in that area, or maybe people like me of the left are the minority. It's You couldn't win if that way, but that's reality. We'll keep you posted on all things Illinois Senate news as today's program rolls along. But finally, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> I am so proud of you. <laughs> And Ben, maybe he listens after all. He may have taken my advice because today on our Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker schedule, he's not in Chicago. Finally. (laughs) He's been in Chicago every day at that Thompson Center. Today he's in Carbondale at the Banterra Center to speak at the deployment ceremony for the Illinois Army National Guard. Then he's off to SIUE Carbondale to speak about Rebuild Illinois and investments in the university. And if he's smart, he'll talk to these downstaters into signing on for that fair tax initiative that he'd prefer get voted in. Yeah, fair tax is the big political fight in Illinois uh, in the coming year. I don't know if it's going to get the attention it deserves. Uh, Rachel Ventura, let me ask you this. As a candidate for the Democratic primary, um, are you going to run in favor of the fair tax? Are you are you going to run away from the whole issue? I do believe that we need to be taxing people fairly. You know, I've talked about a wealth tax, whether it's Warren's plan, Bernie's or AOC. You know, in 1981, when I was born, we had a marginal tax rate of 70% in this country, and we haven't seen one since those years. So it's time that the rich pay their fair share. So I think the fair tax could have been structured a little stronger, um, uh, maybe a bigger decrease on the lower end and a higher increase on their higher end, but I am in favor of the rich paying their fair share, so. 
Fair tax it is. All right. And we can't do the local news without... This little light of mine. <laughs> I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is at Rush University Medical Center to deliver remarks on health equity at the launch of a firm, the Rush Center for Gender, Sexuality, and Reproductive Health. That's what's going on locally. Ventura, one more time. Electventura.com. Go check it out. And don't go anywhere. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. When you lose a loved one whose wishes were to be cremated, Chicagoland Cremation Options provides your family a dignified and affordable cremation service. Chicagoland Cremation Options helps you bypass the expensive overhead of a funeral home or cemetery by streamlining the cremation directly. It saves you sometimes thousands of dollars. Chicagoland Cremation Options Crematory, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. You can find them at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. All right, that's enough, Mayor Ron. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, yes, I just got a text from our next guest, Roy oh. LaRavier. Awesome. Uh, you are me... just a multitasking guy <laughs> no, today. No, but he sent me an article to read. Like, apparently, he's been listening to me uh, defending Elizabeth Warren, so an article critical of Elizabeth Warren. i got to read well, it. have been doing five things at once today. Read that, <laughs> interview Maya at the same time, and yeah. grab Troy when he gets here. <laughs> yeah. Let's do that. A uh, busy day on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, Maya, before we do, we have like three things uh, I have to do with you before we get to what you want to talk about. Yeah. So, so let's get through them, Ben, because we don't have that much time left. And oh. I want to talk about something very important. So right. let's start well, with number one. We, we got a lot. Number of one. <laughs> number one. Uh, first Tuesdays coming up at the hideout on November. I mean, November. February. I'm like, that's what threw me. February 4th. <laughs> February I'm 4th. Like, November. First Tuesday, February 4th, we've got our great debate show with Carlos Ramirez Rosa, uh, proxy for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and um, Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, proxy for the Elizabeth Warren campaign. We're bringing them together on stage. We're going to be talking to them about uh, the candidates they're, they're, um, they're representing and that they're stumping for out there. We're going to talk about similarities and differences between the two and... Um, more importantly, you know, uh, what what a winning strategy for the left in 2020 might look like. Um, this isn't going to be some kind of Jerry Springer thing, you know. <laughs> or will it? Well, or <laughs> no, the, I mean, look, the point is not, the point is that, uh, you know, we, I think you and I are interested in how we can kind of expand the, ta- the, the tent around these progressive ideas and, and rather than just have this be some kind of like, who's better, you know, uh, type of fight so should be an interesting conversation uh we'll have some you know plenty of room to ask some challenging questions for both of them uh and yeah and um that is again february 4th 6 30 
at the hideout. Give them the address, Ben. 1354 West Wabansia. That's and correct. The, and these have been selling out every month that we've done them so far. So I encourage everyone to grab a ticket early and often. Yeah. $5. And uh, perfect timing. Talk about organic here. Like that hand, when I saw the handshake thing go down, I'm like, uh oh. First Tuesday. <laughs> well, it's going to get rowdy. We yeah. got like Dragon Slayer 19. Uh, he weighed in. He said, cage match, cage match. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what Maya doesn't want to do. All right. Yeah. Though this whole thing about the handshake and the sexism and all this stuff, I'm just, it's, I'm sad to see it personally. I'm sad to see it because this is, this is like, this is not, this is not helpful or productive for the overall, uh, cause so to speak the overall movement if if these guys are finding between themselves that's kind of my position on this i'm with you 100 percent on that one i i thought it was uh i i still believe that uh, it was a, a tactic and a strategy that uh, elizabeth warren's campaign decided to employ uh to exploit uh, something that they'd learn in their polls because let's face it uh, Maya you you know as well as I do uh, that the tactical end of campaigning involves polls dirty politics uh, hitting low and, and negativity and it, right and it also it also you have to ask yourself the question who is that effective messaging for who who is it aimed to shore up to put out this idea that Bernie Sanders might be have some kind of sexist notion of a woman not being able to be president. Who's that aimed at? And that's aimed at white women. They're trying, that's like, a, that's a strategy to siphon white women away from Bernie Sanders. And they, you know, like, because like, I, I can't imagine a constituency or a kind of demographic, I guess, of, of people who, who, other than white women, who would really be like, uh, seriously perturbed about, uh, about that, like there, there are there are plenty of other issues. I mean, I don't know what the polling is like for Bernie um, with black voters, men and women. If it's been, you know, what the numbers are separated out, but um, I just feel like there's something. There's like there's this. It's it's just. Um, I feel like people in the African American community who are already progressive and sort of on the left side of things, like. The, this is this thing about oh bernie doesn't think a woman can win in 2020 that's like a such a sh it's like such a uh it's like aimed at someone who isn't thinking very deeply about uh what's really at stake mm -hmm. and like the policies and stuff and i just think that that's like it's like a this is like a certain kind of thing that's meant to appeal to white women in particular mm-hmm yeah, well, I had uh, a similar thought that it was the product, a strategy that was born out of a focus group or a poll. It's just smelled of one. Yeah. And uh, and similarly, what Bernie did with his uh, uh, the little script he had people reading about the elitists, uh, mm, linking yeah. Elizabeth Warren to elitists, I'm sure their focus group so that, well, that's where she's vulnerable. She was a Harvard professor. Uh, a lot of, you know, there's a sense that uh, people with more, higher education are for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and uh, so we're going to exploit that. I, I, I think both are do a detriment to the larger cause of progressivity. I think that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, should be commended for the voices they've 
they they are add to the discussions and I just think these are trivial frivolous attacks yeah and I think that, that people no who are paying serious attention to these candidates are not I don't think these are issues that they're gonna change their mind about their candidates over I like I don't you know I don't I just uh yeah well it, what it does is it reinforces certain biases that people have I'll probably talk about this more with Troy but you know, when Hillary Clinton came out today, I don't know if you saw this, bashing Bernie in an interview. Uh, and just, I know a lot of people, uh, older people, generally speaking, just throw that out there, who uh, just have a visceral uh, reaction against Bernie Sanders that's left over for 2016. Now, if he's the nominee, would they sit it out? Hard for me to imagine that. But uh, it's just discontent. It makes it more difficult uh, to build alliances, and uh, you know it's it dis- it's a distraction. So uh, effectively, this just reinforces attitudes that people already have. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's switch gears uh, to what you really want to talk about. Yeah. A very fascinating story that's brewing in the first congressional district. Oh, talk yeah. About so the Hyde Park Herald the other day uh, published a very interesting story about uh, one of the candidates challenging Bobby Rush. There's three of them running. Uh, one of them is uh, this woman, Sarah Gad. And uh, the Herald found that Sarah Gad appeared or people associated with her campaign appeared to be uh, managing fake social media accounts that were supporting Sarah Gad online. So um, the Herald published this story that 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 shows that some of these accounts that are frequently tweeting or posting things that are supportive of Gad's candidacy, like the photos of these you know, of the, the like so, somebody is claimed to be uh, a uh, working for the ACLU. And like it turns out that person doesn't exist. Uh, a bunch of the photos that were used as like the profile pictures for these accounts are traced back to like, oh, this is like an actually like an Indian cricket player and, and not like, you know, a local voter that's supporting Sarah Gad. Like that's who the picture is of. You know, other ones, it's it was like a Black Lives Matter uh, protester in Houston, I think. Like, there was just, like, random assortment of, of, of avatars that are pulled off of pictures of the Internet. Um, and uh, this is all... Uh, you know, it, it, the, the Sarah Gads campaign has like vehemently denied uh, that they're behind these fake accounts. But at the same time, a, a couple of key people in her campaign have resigned recently. And uh, it's possible that it's over these kinds of issues and of, over the way that that she's been running this campaign. But w- what was uh, what was particularly funny to me is that yesterday so so Sarah Gad did not speak with the Hyde Park Herald for this story I guess they reached out to her and and she did not comment so yesterday there uh, the uh, reporter who wrote the story Aaron Gettinger was was um, you know tweeting about the story and the findings and uh, he showed you know examples of these posts that appear to be actually people within Sarah Gad's campaign that are that are that are making these social media posts and Sarah Gad ultimately responded uh responded to this to 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 his tweets um and she said 
I failed to respond because I'm busy running this. She's responding to like the, the reporter and a bunch of other people who were tagged on these posts, including myself. And she wrote, I failed to respond because I'm busy running a campaign, my nonprofits and preparing for an upcoming campaign job fair slash expungement clinic. I can't respond to daily messages from a tabloid newspaper harassing me every day for comments about meaningless fabricated stories. This is for a political candidate to be calling a political reporter's work in a community newspaper, which is most definitely not a tabloid newspaper. To be responding in this way is like, just seems like a bad call. Like this is this is this is like amateur hour over here. Like whoever is working on her campaign messaging, this is like this is uh, I, I like it's this is just like an absurd response. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to deflect and deny that you may be involved in something like this, but the fact that she called him a tabloid is 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 really just very ridiculous. And then she subsequently blocked the Hyde Park Herald reporter uh, on Twitter. He posted a, cre- a screenshot of that. So, you know, it's kind of, um, I suppose it's not a very surprising story. I mean, she also, also the, the, the Hyde Park Herald uh, reported that she claimed that she was in medical school at the University of Chicago and she wasn't. And uh, I guess she's at the law school there. But anyway, um, the thing that I think perturbs me about all of this uh, and about just this notion of candidates having fake social media accounts, you know, supposedly supporting them and whatever, it's that like we all know that like elections are now more than ever fraught with all kinds of interference in the social media sphere, that there's all kinds of fake, fake accounts, you know, managed by Russian troll farms and, and other kind of foreign actors who want to sow chaos and, you know, confuse and discombobulate people. So there's just a general tanking of, of, of faith in the democratic process. And it, it hurts our kind of, you know, civil society and our political culture that that there's like so much discord and disinformation sued in this sowed in the social media sphere to have like a candidate participate in this is is really like it's really nuts because like i mean candidates do all kinds of dirty dirty playing you know in the process of the of, of campaigning especially in you know in chicago and cook county but like to 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 create to like add more to the already chaotic uh scene that is like social media with like all kinds of fake accounts and fake support groups and whatever to have like candidates themselves be uh tangled up with that and doing that kind of thing is really like uh, i just think it's a disgrace well it's it's so hard to believe anything anyway i mean um and then when it's a candidate doing it allegedly (laughs) it's like you know it's uh yeah i i have this I, I, I sort of a joke, but I kind of believe it as well. I always say, I never believe anything, the, the good things a candidate says about him or herself, and never believe the bad things they say about their opponent in a flyer. You get those flyers. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of my joke that I've been making, and I'm uh, kind of coming to that. I mean, we've seen, I don't know if you've been following this one. This was not on my uh, homework list of things for you to study, but uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, versus Joe Biden um, issue over Social Security and claims that Bernie Sanders people have made about Joe Biden uh, in regards to his record on Social Security is a classic example of this. 
Uh, and then the counterclaims of Joe Biden about what Bernie Sanders is doing. So we're, uh, Bernie Sanders made up a position that Joe Biden had taken in remarks that was clearly erroneous. Joe Biden was not making those remarks regarding Social Security, so Bernie was wrong to do that. Then Joe Biden countered by saying that Bernie had doctored video uh, of him saying things. Bernie did not doctor the video. So Joe Biden, so Joe Biden's defense of Bernie Sanders' accusations were in themselves uh, inaccurate. So to a certain degree, Amaya, you can't believe, you know, once you get into that furious exchange of a political campaign where they're just throwing punches at each mm-hmm. other, it's really hard to make sense of anything at all. But yes, this goes one step beyond that. Yeah, and 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 the bigger issue here again like this is this is oh she, she, this woman is one of three candidates challenging Bobby Rush. The other ones are Robert Emmons and uh Amina Matthews. Um who uh I mean, but they <laughs> they're trying to take out Bobby Rush. Yeah. Like the, like the Obama stumbling block, like the, like t- like tell people about wh- what what like what Bobby Rush means and what an attempt to challenge him in an election really yeah. entails. Wow, uh, I could go on and on. I'm really going to try to uh, focus on this one, uh, Maya, because Bobby Rush. When I just think of Bobby Rush, it opens up so much history. That's really history that I've lived through here in uh, the city of Chicago. Uh, Bobby Rush first became well-known to the public uh, in the late 60s when he was one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party uh, in the city of Chicago. I don't know if he was the number two or number three to Fred Hampton, uh, but he was high up there. Uh, He was very young. Um, He was in his early 20s, I want to say. He had just gotten out of the military. He was in the Army. He's from the north side of Chicago. Uh, and uh, that's where he was great raised. Uh, he, uh, and so anyway, uh, and when Fred Hampton was killed in a police raid, Bobby Rush had to go underground. He was very concerned that the police were going to come after him next. And I remember, I just was a little kid reading newspapers, and I was obsessive then as I am now, uh, that it was like Jesse Jackson, a very young Jesse Jackson, was the one who gave shelter uh, to Bobby Rush. It was very concerned that he himself, Bobby Rush, would, I, would be the next victim. And so he emerged with certain bona fides as a result of that, like a courageous voice for black empowerment. Uh, who would stand up even at the fate, the risk of losing his life. That is currency, political currency, Maya, that is not cheap. It means something. It's very valuable. And so uh, fast forward about uh, 13 years later, I want to say, Bobby Rush first ran for office. He ran for alderman in, uh, what was it, well, for, uh, was it the uh, second ward? Uh, and he beat uh, the incumbent, and he was aligned with Harold Washington. And so... Again, so he was in the city council during the Washington years. That is correct. Okay. He was uh, he got he was elected in 1983 to the city council. Uh, it was part of the Washington movement when Harold Washington was. This is ancient history, but when Harold Washington was elected mayor of the city of Chicago, uh, it did not just mean that there was a change at the top. Harold Washington uh, swept out of office. I forget like five or six. I want to say. A black alderman who are loyal to Jane Byrne. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them was, uh, I believe his name was Barnett. I can't believe I remember that, who was the alderman that Bobby Rush defeated. So mm-hmm. Bobby Rush was very much a, a, a Harold Washington ally uh, in the city council throughout the 80s. And then, irony of ironies, in 1992, Harold, of course, was dead. 
Bobby Rush ran against an incumbent congressman named Charlie Hayes, who was a labor leader. Uh, and Charlie Hayes had been a very close ally of Harold Washington. Harold Washington is the reason. Harold Washington had held that seat, first congressional, and he basically ushered it over to uh, Charlie Hayes, even though most black nationalists were for uh, Lou Palmer. This is ancient history that only I remember and a few other old timers. But the point is, is that Bobby Rush showed he had political chops you know, he knew how to uh, organize a campaign, run a campaign, at least in the black community. And he used that reputation I talked about uh, from the Black Panther days to defeat uh, Charlie Hayes. And uh, since then, he's been unbeatable. In 2000, as you pointed out, a young man named Barack Obama had the temerity to run against uh, uh Bobby Rush got clobbered. Yeah, uh, so he's a be- he's a beloved figure, and in terms of like what, you know, in terms of his legislative sort of history, you know, what 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 has he done for his district in Congress or for Chicago? How, what do you identify with him as in terms of his achievements in Congress? Well, that that said, Bobby Rush uh, is I would not put Bobby Rush uh, in the same pantheon of progressive leaders as. Uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or uh, Harold Washington, you, you know, from his days in Congress, Bobby Rush has been your standard uh, Democrat. If somebody else is uh, is uh, proposing something that's progressive, probably support it, but he's not going to be the person that brings it to the table. Yeah, and- he doesn't seem to be as somebody who really be- has forged a career in Congress as like the face of no. The face of it. I mean, it's like not like Luis Gutierrez, who, you know, was was like a nationally recognized person in Congress on, on, on certain issue. issues. Yes. Right. I don't I don't think of I mean, I can't think of anything Bobby Rush has been at the forefront of That's what I'm saying. as a congressperson, which, you know, makes it like sort of not surprising at all that he frequently has challengers in these direction in these elections. But it's like you like he knows how to play this game. And so like it's just it. it I feel like if you're going to if you're going to have the audacity to run against him like what you know you can't be <laughs> you can't having be like fake social up. media yeah. accounts well, this, <laughs> like that can be easily traced back and like you know like c- completely damage your legitimacy mm-hmm. like it's just like you've already got like Mount Everest to climb yeah you know it's true and it's also a generational issue which uh, it's, it, we could get into as well. Bobby Rush has got to be in his 70s. He's been around forever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, by the way, on local issues, he endorsed Bill Daly. Remember that in the last mayoral? Ooh, yeah. yeah. And uh, then he flip-flopped, turned right around and endorsed uh, Tony Preckwinkle and was, you know, ripping. He, he really irritated uh, uh, Lori Lightfoot to no end with the speech he made. I forget exactly what he said, uh, but I remember at the time it was inflammatory and it, uh, it irritated Lori Lightfoot, and she probably holds a grudge against Tony Preckwinkle ever since. You know, Lori doesn't forget these things. She's a little like me in that way, Maya. We don't forget grudges. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a confusing, checkered career. Mm-hmm. You know, supporting Bill Daly? What's that all about? I yeah. Mean, supporting the... Hey, so he, like on local issues, Bobby Rush, I, I think of all the great progressive issues of our time that uh, we've written about at the Chicago Reader. Bobby Rush has not been on the front lines of any of those issues. You know, he's been away and he's like a typical congressman in that regard. He doesn't pay attention to what's going on except uh, in in Chicago, except to drop in from time to time and make an endorsement in a certain 
campaign. Yeah, but he's, he's just he's just a congressman. Like he's he's just, that's like that's that's his role. Like he continues to be in Congress. That said, he's Bobby Rush. But he's Bobby Rush. He was yeah. there uh, in 1969 when uh, Fred Hampton was killed in his sleep. He's got currency. He's he's got name recognition, totally. and he's got legitimacy because of that. And here's something else, Ma. I'd love to get your feelings on this. This gets into generational issues. Older voters, and I know this breed very well, they're very slow to embrace something new. They won't even embrace Bernie. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know he's that they they get stuck in their ways. Uh, well, I, and Bobby Rush is always there. You know. <laughs> So it's going to be very hard for a millennial. Yeah, Bobby Rush. I remember Bobby Rush. And there's pictures with Bobby Rush. Same thing. Just Let's not just pick on Bobby Rush. Jan Schakowsky in the ninth. I don't think any millennial could defeat Jan Schakowsky in the ninth. Mm. Older voters would rally to her. Danny K. Davis in the seventh. He's got uh, two uh, candidates. Keena Collins is running against mm-hmm. him. And um, it's, that's an uphill battle. Older voters. They're very loyal. Well, but the difference with the first district, though, is that uh, this includes like sections of Hyde Park. Uh, There's the the kind of there's younger people there. There's students there. You know, this is this is like. It's not just like a settled kind of older homeowner population. Um, So but that being said, I, I really think that all of these candidates have. Uh, this is like a very hard road, and, yeah, it, and 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 quite aside from voter, you know, Bobby Rush having like so, been being seen so favorably in the community and whatever, like he knows how to play this politics game, yeah, better than anyone. Like, I mean, yeah, of of the of the people challenging him, the candidate that I'm finding that I'm actually I'd be more, most curious to see like what you know what their ground game is like is Amina Matthews. Um, I'll bring her on the show. Yeah, she's got she's got a lot of uh, a, a lot of history in the community of a lot of community oriented work, a lot of anti violence work, and you know she's in. I would say that she's like a you know uh, uh, has a lot of name and face recognition. So, um, but yeah, but I don't you know I don't <laughs> I don't know if she even she really has a chance. I I'll, I'll definitely bring her on the show. See what uh, she has to say. I'm open to new voices like. Um, uh, we just had Rachel Ventura on the show, and uh, just new progressive voices, I think, are very important for the Democratic Party. Uh, but again, these attitudes are so strong. I was just listening uh, yesterday. I don't know if, uh, I, again, I didn't have a chance to talk to you about this. I'm throwing this at you without any preparation. But uh, the New York Times had their endorsement session, oh. and then uh, where they endorsed uh, Amy Klobuchar. They, and listen, we couldn't pick one person. You can't uh, sit on two chairs. Yeah. You can't, you know, this is uh, this is like something we say in Russian, you know. Like, say it in Russian. Well, it, it sort of depends situationally on, on uh, like, when someone is doing that, человек пытается сидеть на двух стульях. Like, there, there's, it's a, it's a person who's trying to sit on two chairs, which is like, you, you, you know, well, I just got to I'm, sure, I'm sure it's going to work out great for the New York Times because, uh, you know, this is this is this is all you know, here we are talking about it. People are clicking on it. You know, it's fine. I, but it's just it's like ugh, well, it's bleak. I, all right. Let's just say something. It's uh, bleaker than the Tribune endorsing Gary Johnson. Wow. 
Whoa. Mind blown. Uh, you want to hear, hear about spineless moves. You know, wow. like the Tribune endorsing Gary Johnson is still, in my book, the most spineless thing any media organization has ever done in this wow. arena. Wow, I got to think about that. That's a, I, I tend to go off on passionate tangents uh, denouncing the Chicago <laughs> Tribune for endorsing Gary Johnson. Oh, you Johnson. can't beat up on them too badly right now. Well, though. actually, can I just do a shout out to uh, Mary Wisniewski and Charlie Johnson, uh, two of our brothers and sisters in the union. Yeah. Let's put that out there. They're really facing some bleak times right they now. So here. everybody better read the Tribune. Uh, they were here in this studio on Friday. We did an interview. Uh, talking about the changes that the Tribune is confronting since this hedge fund, uh, Alden Capital uh, bought a majority stake. Uh, they bought um, Michael Farrell's stake out, and uh, there's they vast there's there there's really a threat of layoffs and buyouts and just reducing uh, the scope of what the Tribune could do. And Mary and Charlie did a great job of talking about it. I urge everybody not now, but to check out that that download. And um, after today's show, and I'll say this, I, I say this all the time, I, the, the, the Chicago Tribune's editorial voice is utterly baffling. Um, sometimes I think it's just like a parody and it's just, we'll, we'll, we'll learn later that it was just all some, some kind of inside joke and they were really in on it. Uh, that's the only thing that would justify some of the silly things they've written, but the journalists at the Tribune, I can't give them enough love. Yeah, but the issue the of the editorial the, yes. board endorsement, uh, the New York Times endorsing Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren is is uh, okay, so an here, abs absurd. Okay, so here's a part of the, what they did was they released, this is, I spent a, a lot of time yesterday doing this, uh, listening to their podcast where they, they uh, the editorial board members explained why they, they uh, divided their votes between Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar and uh, froze Bernie out. That was like kind of, and Biden. But Let's main, hear it. All right. But the, the <laughs> uh, well, I don't believe what they said. I believe they, um, they couldn't make up their mind. Uh, I believe they wanted to, they didn't want to take a definitive stand on the battle between progressives and centrists and the Democratic Party uh, because they're really, they're just like the Chicago Tribune in this regard. Uh, they didn't want to alienate their readers by taking a strong stand, and they knew that their readers are split, so they just I mean, cut Amy down the Klobuchar, difference. have you actually met an Amy Klobuchar voter? Have you met a single person who's into Amy Klobuchar? Because I have I have yet to have a face-to-face -face conversation. I've met Mayor Pete people, I've met Biden people, Bernie people, Warren people, Cory Booker people, Kamala Harris people. I have yet to encounter in real life, face-to-face, -face, <laughs> a person who's into Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I'm trying to think if I have. She's on my list of five. I have to do. You have to do five. Like I, I make. I make my list. The guests you come have in. to do five. I know. Most of them don't do five. I got to tell you that, Maya. Like, do, mo what do you mean do five? My top five. So candidates. Still. You got five candidates. There's. Can you name five Democrats? Put them in order. Like if you had a vote right now, who? Which would your order be? So you're number one. You're two. You're three. You're four. You're five. I'll just. I want. I say get it down to five. Uh, and, uh, you know, it could change. So you're saying you haven't even met someone who put my, them on their Kul five? Klobuchar is on my, she's one of my five. But there's like six of them left. Well, How there's actually are? more than exactly. six. Oh, well, actually, <laughs> there's more than six. Uh, there's Bloomberg. He's running. He's Tom Steyer doesn't count. 
why does that <laughs> you have an interesting uh, why does he I, not count I, Tulsi Gabbard's still running so okay. she could be in there alright well listen Michael no, Bennett I believe is running this is super evasive man I'm asking you if no, you the ever met no. somebody who's no. excited about Amy Klobuchar no you're absolutely correct Dennis have you met somebody who's excited about Amy Klobuchar not in person no no Exactly. Have you ever that's met one and not in person? Well, I know Bill Maher goes on and on. Oh about yeah, AB Bill Klobuchar. Maher. That's right. I just wow. listened to his. What a horrible! What a horrible oh, endorsement. Come on, people. Bill Maher. <laughs> yeah. Amy no, Klobuchar. Yeah. No, that's it. Bill Maher is the only person. And by the way, she's not even in his top. I don't even think he would vote for her. He just. Yeah. Like, no. He just no. No. It's because he doesn't want to. He doesn't. He. He. he so he, what do you think that was all about? What do you think the New York Times was all about when they? No, it's what you said. It's to not alienate too many of their readers. Their so job is to sell newspapers. So they why not go for Joe Biden? I mean, if you want a centrist, go for a centrist that somebody's supporting. Um, I don't know because no, <laughs> you don't. You don't really want to. You know, you don't want that. Would be embarrassing. His likelihood of winning is so low that like. It would really be embarrassing if if the New York Times was like coming out hot and strong for him. I would say that Joe Biden has a greater chance of being elected president in twenty twenty than, than Amy Klobuchar. Okay, true, <laughs> but if he loses and they endorsed him, that's more embarrassing than if Amy Klobuchar does, which she will. Uh, and and they have they endorsed her. Like yeah. I think that like being, I think it, it yeah. I don't know. It was very bizarre. But anyway, uh, one of the revealing aspects of their uh, thought process was revealed uh, in a, uh, uh, a taping where one of the editors said, I can't remember which one, they were just voices on a podcast, uh, said uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders can't win, I'm paraphrasing here, because he's supported by young people. And if one thing we've learned, uh, young people don't vote, and this election will be determined by older voters. Young people don't. And they were just dismissing uh, the, uh, Bernie on the electability issue, and it was just this dismissive, uh, disdainful attitude about young voters in general, and the whole notion, uh, really, that the Democrats can win by doing the things that you've been talking about for months on this show, building their base, generating uh, more uh, passion in, you know, among uh, younger voters and uh, voters who don't ordinarily vote, uh, marginalized voters, as they call, and they just sort of dismiss that. Ah, that's not going to work. It's just, it may get him 30% of the vote. You know, I just, once again, I just want to remind everybody, these are the same people who were completely sure that Donald Trump could not win an election. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, like... This is this is this is this is all meaningless, you know. This is just filling up filling up time and space and and new sprint with the conversation of the day. All right, very good, Maya. Uh, before I let you go, anything else you want to say? Anything you want to promote? Any articles you want to talk about other than of our February fourth appearance at the hideout? Just a reminder about the February fourth appearance at the hideout. Everybody should come out. It'll be, I think it'll be a good conversation. Uh, I agree. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, once more time, Carlos Ramirez Rosa and Brandon Johnson. Maya, thank you so much. Uh, we got Troy LaRavia on deck. We're going to bring him on uh, when we return.